Welcome into another edition of Stern Spotlight. With Super Bowl week upon us, I wanted to talk about why Matthew Stafford is the player with the most at stake in the big game. Also, with the Brian Flores lawsuit swirling around the NFL and controversy plaguing the league as it has for much of the past year, I wanted to diagnose the stem and root of all of the problems in the league. I'll tell you who's responsible for the culture that the NFL has created next on Stern Spotlight. The narrative on Matthew Stafford throughout his career has been that he's a good but not a great quarterback. While he's led his teams to the playoffs a number of times and proven to be a guy who can drive the ship in a straight direction, he hasn't necessarily been the face of the franchise type of guy that a lot of people frankly expected him to be when he was taken number one overall in 2009 out of Georgia. But Stafford can dismiss all of the preconceived notions and misconceptions about his shortcomings with one win against the Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl a week from Sunday. Even though he's been one of the best quarterbacks, statistically speaking, in the league over the past decade, and he's led the Detroit Lions, a pretty bad organization, to three playoff appearances, I would say that the biggest knock on Matthew Stafford was that he didn't have a postseason win. And the lack of playoff success has stuck out like a sore thumb on his resume. When you look at any of the great quarterbacks over the past decade— whether it be Ben Roethlisberger or Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. The one overlying commonality between those guys is that they've had success in the postseason. Now, all three of them have won rings, but that's beside the point. To be considered an elite quarterback in this league, you need to be able to win in the playoffs. And heading into this year, Matthew Stafford was just unable to do that. But in the span of a month, 31 calendar days, by the way, Matthew Stafford has matched his playoff loss total by ripping off three consecutive victories. And all three wins came against pretty good teams. It's not like he was beating teams that got into the playoffs by accident or anything like that. In the opening round, he took down Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals, widely considered a Super Bowl favorite in the early portion of the season. Then in the divisional round, he beat Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's not an easy team to beat. And then in the NFC Championship game, he beat Jimmy Garoppolo and the San Francisco 49ers after facing a 10-point deficit midway through the third quarter. Those are three impressive wins, almost enough to make people forget he had three losses coming into the season. Beating Tom Brady in of itself should be enough to make people forget about his previous postseason struggles, to be honest with you. It shouldn't just be about his record, because Tom Brady is one of the best quarterbacks in NFL history, and historically speaking, is much tougher to beat in the postseason. If you have any doubts about this, ask the Atlanta Falcons, who blew a 28-3 lead, or Kansas City, who laid an absolute dud against Tommy Terrific in last year's big game. For some reason, Brady has been the type of guy who's played his best football in the postseason. And a lot of people are discrediting that win by saying, oh, the Rams had a big lead early on. Brady was in the last year of his career as he retired earlier this week. But to those two things, I say that's a bunch of baloney. Because at the end of the day, Brady has overcome massive deficits time after time. 
He led the Tampa Bay Buccaneers back in the game against the Rams. And when it seemed like momentum wasn't on his side and there was going to be another postseason collapse from Stafford, he drove his team down the field for a game-winning field goal. That's pretty damn impressive. Don't underestimate the difficulty in doing that and doing that on the road in a very hostile environment in Tampa Bay where they felt like they were going to win that game. To me, the pairing of Matthew Stafford with head coach Sean McVay was an absolute match made in heaven. More importantly, a marriage that's frankly destined for long-term success. I think the pairing of these two guys can win games beyond this year. Matter of fact, I'll take that a step further and say they can win together for the next three years. It was obvious to me that Sean McVay needed a quarterback who would take his team to the next level. Jared Goff clearly wasn't the answer. It's impressive enough that McVay was able to take Goff to the Super Bowl considering how much he struggled this year with the Detroit Lions. And Stafford was really in need of a good supporting cast to elevate his play. That's not something he had for the most part with the Detroit Lions. Name one running back that he played with in Detroit. I can't do it off the top of my head. Name one good receiver that the Lions had beyond Calvin Johnson, who's one of the best of all time. The only guy I can think of is Nate Burleson. Nate Burleson was a number three receiver, a solid shifty slot guy everywhere else he went but Detroit, where he was expected to be the number two receiver. So let's not sit here and pretend that Stafford had an outstanding supporting cast elsewhere, because frankly, he didn't. Having Odell Beckham, Cooper Cup, and the old but still gold Andrew Whitworth as his personal bodyguard and blindside protector has made a world of difference. Cooper Cup has been, become one of the best receivers in the league this year. He's taken his game to the next level. I wonder why. It's because he had Matthew Stafford as his, as his quarterback. Odell Beckham was run out of town at his previous two stops with the Giants and then again with the Cleveland Browns. He wanted to be in Hollywood all along, and I'm guessing that had something to do with forcing a trade to the Rams, but he looks like a completely different player with this team. And you have to give... Matthew Stafford, a lot of credit for that. Sure, he had Megatron in Motown, even though the Rams don't necessarily have a receiver of that caliber. And by that caliber, I mean that type of prototype, a big-bodied bully who can jump over anyone, who can beat up defensive backs. I think the all-around supporting cast and the base and the foundation that Stafford has with the Rams is a whole lot stronger. And... At looking at the issues in Detroit, I think we're now starting to realize that Stafford made everyone around him better. It was never the other way around. It was never the receivers playing well or having a really good running game behind him because he never had that. The Rams' decision to push all of their chips to the center of the table and go all in on Stafford and this team has paid off tremendously. The Rams don't have a first-round pick until 2024. They believe Matthew Stafford is going to be their franchise quarterback for the next couple of years. That's obvious. And if this team does not win a Super Bowl within the next couple of years, they don't really have a backup plan. This is a very old roster. You have Jalen Ramsey and Von Miller, who at this stage of their career are veterans on the defensive side of the ball. 
Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham are still fairly young, but they're not exactly rookies either. So they're banking on this veteran roster to have some degree of success. And they've played their best football when it's mattered most, have been able to stay relatively healthy, and most of all, look motivated and ready to play on a weekly basis. Those are the three most important things about this team in my mind. Even when they've had rough patches in the season, or everyone thought the Rams were fatigued and unable to play good football anymore, they've come out and surprised all of us. Give credit to the training staff for keeping them healthy, because it's hard to stay healthy over the course of a 17-game year. You look at what happened to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC Championship game, they were missing some of their best players, and that played a role in them losing that game. The Rams have been able to utilize this mindset that it's a marathon and not a sprint, and that's paid off massively. And you got to give credit to McVay, but also Stafford as one of the leaders of the team for keeping this team motivated and ready to play. They're having fun on the sidelines. They're smiling. They're laughing. They're look, they look loose. There's no deficit that bothers them. Sean McVay is running into the end zone and celebrating with his, with his players. I understand that this is a business and the NFL is very cutthroat, but I do believe that teams play their best football when they're playing loose, and that's what the Rams are doing right now. It's almost funny to me that after losing to the Niners at the end of the regular season in week 17, at home, by the way, everyone was ready to write this team off. But in actuality, it turns out that all they needed was a grudge match round three to take down the Bay Area boys. Didn't matter that they had lost to them the previous two times during the regular season because it's irrelevant in the postseason. They weren't phased by the fact that the Niners had pretty much owned them over the past couple of years, and that's important. And to me, if the Rams defeat Cincinnati on their home turf, which is significant because they're the second straight team to play a Super Bowl at home, after it ne- had never been done before. And say what you want about the Rams fan base not showing up against the Niners and uh, allowing a red out, if you will, in the stadium. I still think having home field advantage adds a lever- level of comfortability and secureness that playing on the road doesn't have. But if they win against Cincinnati, everyone will forget about Stafford's three playoff losses with Detroit. And... Ultimately, they'll blame the organization for not setting him up to succeed. doesn't matter if he had three playoff losses if he won four straight in one season. Because now we understand that Detroit was the problem and it had nothing to do with Matthew Stafford. That's obvious. And on that level, there's no better way to test correlation with causation in the game of football than to remove a quarterback from one team, put him on another, and see how it goes. Look at what happened with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in New England. There was a divorce between the two sides. Brady went and won a Super Bowl in year one with the Buccaneers. And then Bill Belichick went 6-10 and ten with Cam Newton. Now, relying on Cam Newton as your franchise quarterback at this stage of his career is a bad strategy to begin with. But it's clear that Belichick wasn't some type of mastermind because if he was, he could have just waved his magic wand and won with him. And this year with Mac Jones, you have to give him credit for having some degree of success with the rookie and making the postseason in the first place. But they got absolutely walloped 
by the Buffalo Bills on the road in round one. And, you know, I, I have to imagine that Jones is going to progress, but I don't envision him having that same level of success that he had with Brady with Mac Jones. I just don't, at least not right now. This is a see it to believe it type of league. And I'm having trouble, more trouble than ever before believing that Bill Belichick was this great coach. I think it had more to do with Tom Brady. And a similar phenomenon right now has unfolded with the Lions and Matthew Stafford. Most of all, though, it's amazing the difference a year can make for some players in the NFL. Last February, Stafford was widely viewed as an aging veteran on the regression with only a few good years left. I mean, this is a guy who everyone said was at the twilight of his career and was going to continue to go downhill. And wherever he was next, it didn't matter because he wasn't going to win anyway. That's clearly not the case. It's almost like he was 37 or 38 years old instead of 32. And on that note, some of those, some quarterbacks in the league play their best football at the end of their career. It's not uncommon for that to happen, especially in today's day and age. So it's amazing how people were ready to write Stafford off so quickly. And now... After going to Cabo and meeting with Sean McVay and I guess finding the fountain of youth because both of those guys look rejuvenated and revitalized, he's one win away from hoisting a Lombardi trophy. Isn't that amazing? And a Super Bowl win, to me, would prove sweet man Stafford is aging like a fine wine destined to get even tastier. All of the blame for Brian Flores' lawsuit against the NFL and the culture the league has created belongs on one person. The sole individual responsible for all of this is NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Had NFL organizations crossed their T's, dotted their I's, and walked in a straight line for the last decade, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Had they followed the rules and done things the right way, there would have been nothing to expose. Or at least the things that would have been exposed wouldn't have been major in the way that all of these allegations have come to light. The sleazy, slimy, disgusting business that masquerades itself as a professional football league, not a massage parlor, not a grocery store, not a simple mom-and-pop shop like the movies, but a professional football league has let the players, the coaches, the fans, and the employees of the league and the teams down time and time again. All of the issues that have bubbled to the surface in the past 24 hours have existed all along. There's always been racism in the league. There's always been discrimination. There's always been unethical behavior by the employees of this team. This is not anything new. And this is not the first time a minority was discriminated against during the hiring process. I have to imagine that's happened before. It's the reason so many other people are coming out and alleging that various things went on when they were working in the league. This was not the first time that an owner was abusive to their head coach. Paying for losses is completely unethical. As a matter of fact, it's illegal. Betting on himself and games he was playing in is the sole reason that Pete Rose is not in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. So if owner Steven Ross is not forced to sell the team, then something's wrong. 
Just because he's a billionaire doesn't mean he can ride above the law. That's not the way this thing works. This was also not the first time that Broncos general manager John Elway showed up to work hungover. Isn't it amazing that the guy everyone in Denver worships and treats like a god didn't even have the audacity to show up to a job interview that he was conducting sober? Imagine if you were in that type of a situation. If you're a Broncos fans, think about if you were showing up to a promotional interview with your career on the line, only for the person across from you's breath to be reeking of cheap liquor. This was not a situation where Broncos brass went out and had a few beers, had a glass of wine before the interview the night before. Because all of those things, frankly, would have been okay. There's no problem with doing that. But once you're going out and getting crap-faced, that's when I draw the line in the sand. How would you feel if people continued to bow down to the person who conducted the interview and did not offer you the job after the fact and after you did not get the job? You were treated wrongly and you were not given a job by people who were clearly intoxicated or hung over when they were interviewing you and everyone wiped it off and said it's okay. And if they knew about it, they still wouldn't do anything because they worship this individual. That's how fans are rationalizing their reason and logic. They're clutching for pearls saying, oh, there's no proof. Everyone makes mistakes. No. He acted inappropriately and he needs to admit it. Also think about a situation where you showed up to work and the CEO of your company, not a coworker, not your boss, not a technical superior, who's allowed to give you instructions, but the CEO of your company tells you to sabotage your team and the people that you work with and for, for a massive bonus. And when I use the word massive, I mean it. $100,000 is a lot of money for your standard individual. That's how much Steven Ross was offering Brian Flores to lose games. Would you do something like this? Really ask yourself. Compromising his career prospects and professional reputation for the sake of a paycheck, not anything else, not career advancement, not a recommendation for a job somewhere else, is exactly what Brian Flores was asked to do. He was put in a really tough moral and ethical situation because he was told to lose games. He was taking direction from the owner when he's the head coach and he's the one who knows about football and coached under Bill Belichick and actually played the game and understand what's going on. That's not fair. Maybe if Roger Goodell, now we're going back to the commissioner and the situation and the culture he created, had forced Dan Snyder to sell the Washington Commanders, formerly known as the Washington football team, before they were known as the Washington Redskins, we wouldn't be at this point in the first place. See, does anyone remember when a massive lawsuit was brought against the team and absolutely nothing happened? Well, obviously we remember it because John Gruden was fired because of the leaked emails in this very lawsuit, but many of the details that were, that were involved in the case, whether it be the emails that were leaked, whether it be the truthfulness of the allegations that were put forward, slid under the rug, or disappeared into thin air as other headlines took the front seat. I understand that we were in the middle of the season when all of this unfolded, but at the end of the day, this was such an important, monumental 
lawsuit for the league that could have prompted immediate change, frankly, that it's unacceptable that we effectively forgot that it even existed. That's not fair to the people involved in the lawsuit. That's not fair to the people who were victimized because of the indirect results that would have come about because of the findings. Now fast forward a few months, and surprise, surprise, the league is in legal trouble once again. We couldn't have predicted this a few months ago, could we have? Yeah, we definitely could have, because all of these non-disclosure agreements that were being come to for tens of millions of dollars that wiped these allegations away and prevented parties from speaking out is the exact reason why we're back to square one once again. And this is where we take a deeper dive into Roger Goodell's career path, why he's unfit to lead the NFL, and why he must be dismissed from the organization immediately. Unlike a lot of the Harvard Harvard Business School graduates who climbed the corporate ladder at 345 Park Avenue the conventional way, who started in marketing, who started in sales, or one of the business departments and slowly moved up, Roger Goodell didn't walk down a yellow brick road from point A to point B. He took a very unconventional path, as a matter of fact. He began his career in the NFL as a public relations intern with the league. And then he ultimately climbed his way up to the commissioner role. Had a couple of of other corporate positions on the way there. Learned about the business aspect of the sport and the league. But he started in public relations, It's very rare in corporate America that you see someone in public relations now being the CEO of a corporation that's doing something completely different. He was a corporate communications guy. He wasn't working at a public relations firm, so that's very odd. But his ability to put on a smile, direct the attention toward the pile of gold diamonds, as opposed to the foul-smelling crap that has perpetrated the league forever... I'm talking about the CTE lawsuits and findings that have come about. You know, the findings that demonstrate that football causes massive brain injury. And there's essentially guys who are 40 years old that are walking vegetables because they played in the NFL. And the league and the teams they played for weren't properly managing their injuries. Does that ring a bell for anyone? What about the domestic violence issues? Kareem Hunt somehow after beating his girlfriend, was allowed back in the league. That doesn't seem right. Ray Rice was essentially forced out, but he didn't have to face any major ramifications. And it seems like every other day, players or ex-players are beating their significant other. And we're not looking at the overarching problem here. We're not critically asking ourselves why are NFL players beating their uh, spouses at such a high clip. We need to take a look in a mirror and really understand why. But because Roger Goodell, the public relations professional, the guy who learned to create an excellent image and a brand and association with the league, that's frankly unlike any other professional sport in America. The NFL is the sports empire of North America. Football Sundays are pretty much a holiday in this country. But his ability to create this type of image is why he's so successful at his job. It's, uh, it's why, up until recently, most people in the world were not aware that he was making $64 million a season. And the $64 million does not include kickbacks. It doesn't include private jets. 
nor does it include the boosters that he's receiving from outside parties to keep him happy. And he's making $64 million, while the average player salary in the league, I'm not talking about the elite guys who are making $30 million, which ironically enough is only half of what he's making, but we'll leave that discussion for another day. But the average player in the league is making $860,000 a year. You see the difference between those valuations and contracts? And that really doesn't sit right with me because when people pay a lot of money to go to games, when they flip on the TV on Sunday, they're not watching football because they want to watch Roger Goodell. Really, he doesn't determine the valuation of the league at all. Sure, he runs it, but he's not the one playing in the actual game. So in that line of thought, it's absolutely ridiculous that he's making that much money. And we didn't know that he was making that much money until recently. And no one stepped in to do anything about it, which is ridiculous, quite honestly. Because I'd like to compare his salary to previous commissioners in the league. I can almost guarantee that they were not making as much money. And look, football is a bureaucracy of its own. It's a weird weird world. The NFL is a multi-billion dollar corporation, but... When, when a man is putting that much po- money in his pocket on a yearly basis, to me, there's a problem. And the entitlement and the enablement of head honcho Roger in this situation explains why the league and the organizations within it feel like they're bulletproof. They don't follow any rules. All of these teams essentially govern themselves. They have human resources departments whose paychecks are written by the teams playing conflict uh, resolution roles. That doesn't make any sense. There's no outside counsel or legal teams that they employ to look at these situations with a lens of objectivity because they, they feel so entitled that they can do whatever they want. They conduct their own investigations. They come up with ramifications. They determine the validity of their uh, employees' claims. That's not fair. And it also explains why several coaches in the league involved in the case. Because remember, Flores is leading a group of men. He's not the only employee who was disgruntled and felt he was discriminated against. Have chosen to remain anonymous. Now, I can speculate on who's involved in this case. I think Eric Bieniemy from the Chiefs is probably involved. As is David Culley, who was a one and done with the Houston Texans this year. And I also think Steve Wilkes who was fired after a season with the Arizona Cardinals, and Gerard Mayo, who probably he thought he got an unfair shot um, during his head coaching interview with the Houston Texans, is involved as well. These guys are scared to come forward because they believe that the NFL is going to retaliate against them and blackball them. We've seen this movie before with Colin Kaepernick, and I have to imagine it's going to happen again. Brian Flores is never getting another coaching job in the NFL. He's never going to be in football, as a matter of fact, because teams are scared that he's, he's going to be a snitch. He's going to turn them in the moment they do something wrong. And on the flip side, they think he might feel bulletproof. At the end of the day, though, just like any other poorly run organization, the NFL will be a cauldron for scandals, lawsuits, and bad allegations like the ones that Brian Flores put forth until a new leader is put in place. That's all I have for this week's edition of Stern Spotlight. Be sure to like and subscribe on Spotify. 
Oh, and you can also hit me up on Twitter at J underscore Stern 97. Jay Stern out. Peace.